0: Hello and welcome
1: to Mere Fidelity. My name is Matthew Lee Anderson. I am your host for the day. Um, I'm joined by Alistair uh, and Andrew. We don't know where Derek is, but then we never know where Derek is. Um, Before we get started, I just have one uh, pedantic note about scheduling. Um, We are going to take something of a hiatus over the summer. A number of us are traveling and quite busy, and so we're not going to have time to... Uh, record unfortunately so we're taking a bit of a break if you have supported us on patreon or elsewhere um, we're very grateful we'll of course suspend that uh, for the time being um, uh, because as we are not recording we don't need support Um, so we've loved doing this and we absolutely have plans to return in the fall when our travel is is finished but um, you will have a mere fidelity free summer Do try to survive, catch up on the archives, uh, do what you can. But we are definitely going out, if I can say it, with a bang and not a whimper. Uh, We are joined today by the one, the only, Rod Dreher, the man of the hour. (laughs) Maybe, maybe at this point, the most controversial writer in all of Christendom. Congratulations, Ron. Uh,
2: the, the, well, uh, gosh, I, this is, we're recording early in the morning, but I can hear that you started uh, on your pipes quite early, Matt. <laughs> uh, the book is
1: The Benedict Option. But then you if you're listening to this, you knew that it was The Benedict Option because... The Benedict Option has been the book of 2017 uh, that everyone has felt obligated to respond to, regardless of whether they've read it or not, uh, as Rod has been happy to attest.
2: Um, Far too true. Far too true.
1: <laughs> Rod, we are delighted to have you on the show. Uh, congrats on the, the book. It's a New York Times bestseller, which is very exciting. Uh, I think I saw you in the fall, and I think I called that. I think I, I think I, 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 I officially told you that that would happen. So, you know, prophecy points for me. I
2: think, right? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> okay. you're, you're right about that, thanks for your encouragement.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, okay, so uh, let's dive in, Rod. I, I encouraged you. The subtitle is a strategy for Christians, a strategy for Christians in a post-Christian nation. I I I I told you you should have subtitled it. It's not a withdrawal, um, but you didn't listen to me, and it's I'm sure best that you didn't. Um, but if the Benedict option isn't a withdrawal, what is the strategy that you are proposing, which is only a
2: strategy? Right. Well, it, it's it is uh, uh, what I call a strategic withdrawal, which is. To say that it is not a uh, head for the hills, let's build the compound and await the end withdrawal, but rather it is a more conscious uh, stepping back from the mainstream of popular culture for the sake of deepening our our understanding of Scripture, our, our commitment to each other, and our commitment to Christ uh, in, The traditional in traditional Christianity, so that when we go back out into the world, as all of us will do and must do, uh, we can more authentically represent him in a world that is uh, increasingly hostile to christianity in other words it is a way of sort of stepping behind virtual monastery walls in our homes and our churches and our schools and institutions so for the sake of formation and discipleship so that we can be more effective and faithful disciples out in the public square and one of the things that people don't seem to get. They hear the withdrawal part and immediately think, ah, he's telling us all to go full monastic. I don't see how anybody who's actually read my book can conclude that, but some are.
1: Okay. So can I start there? Uh, and then I'll, you know, well, obviously I'll talk about it, but, um, do you think, so one of, one of the questions that I had is something like, um, you, you propose these quasi monastic communities, and one thing that I wonder is whether um, whether the the strategy is successful without going full monastic, right? Do you do you think that yeah. that, that that it's uh, T. S. Eliot in um, idea of a Christian society? I think it is uh, has a line where he says something like, you know, we would be better off if um, those who were married had more children. And more people did not get married, but entered vocational celibacy, um, and so it's it's sort of both sides. Do you do you think that there's something lost uh, by uh, enjoining a monastic like life on everyone um, that that like just a monastery itself? Um, Requires and is the is the monastery itself a, a, an indispensable part of the strategic withdrawal? Could you have it without the the full monasticism?
2: Well, I, I think we the answer had better be yes, because very few of us, at least in in the United States, have monasteries nearby uh, from which we can draw spiritual counsel and and, and spiritual energy, uh, if I can say that without sounding too New Age. But uh, <laughs> I, I believe that. I believe that um, it is better to do something than nothing, and when I say do nothing, I'm talking about uh, my fellow Christians who go to church on Sunday, maybe send their kids to the youth group on Wednesday, uh, but who otherwise live like everybody else does. Uh, When I talk about the the virtual monastery, I'm talking about simply doing things like, uh, for example, what we do in my house, you know, our, our, our younger kids don't have smartphones We don't have a television connected to cable. I mean, we we do have a television, but it's connected to Netflix and Amazon streaming so we can curate what comes into the house. And uh, we're not just keeping the kids and ourselves, my wife and I, we're not just keeping ourselves away from something. We're also opening up the door to good things. Uh, And not simply things that are explicitly Christian, but uh, the the best of our culture, the best films, the best books, the music, and so on. Uh, the idea is uh, not to keep ourselves hidden away for the sake of purity, but rather to build into ourselves a certain resilience, because we do go out into the culture. We live in a city, um, you know. We, we we participate in our church certainly, and in and a Christian school, but we participate in all kinds of things. And uh, I I believe that in in ages past, it might have been possible to to be fully engaged, fully in the world, and not have to worry as much as, as you might have about whether or not you you have the institutions and the practices and the customs that form a, a real Christian disciple. Um, I, I think for a long time, including the, even the, what's considered by many uh, conservative American Christians, the golden age of Christianity, the 1950s, I think that was very hollow. And we we, we sort of coasted on Having the outward forms of Christian culture without having any real inner conviction. So um, when I talk about going monastic, I simply mean adopting uh, a, a form of a disciplined form of life, uh, more like what the monks do, and clearly what the monks do. If you read the Rule of Saint Benedict, it, it's extraordinarily difficult, and it's not something that most of us can can possibly do. Not if we're living in the world, or not if we have children. But um, there are things in that life that are inspiring and that we can draw from uh, to to build more disciplined lives of prayer, of fasting, of, of reading scripture and, and worship and so on. Alistair? Behind
0: a lot of um, what you write, I sense that you're pushing against not just modern society as um, the particular corruptions that we think about in Morals and all these sorts of things, but something more fundamental to the mode of modern society that is characteristic of many modern churches, which is the organisation of society around individual choice, expression, things like that. So our, choi- our churches are institutions of spiritual expression for the individual to attend them, or sites of spiritual consumption for the sort of worship that we appreciate. Or they function as sorting institutions where people of a particular type gather together and enjoy a certain sort of community. Whereas what you seem to be pushing for is more recognition of the importance of formative institutions, institutions that aren't just sorting particular types of people or providing a means of spiritual expression, but are means of discipleship that form people together in community in faithfulness and also recovering the importance of the labor of communities um communities that are galvanized and strengthened through the common act of formation and the discipline for instance you talk about education in association with the church and the family um, education is a good example of something that we've tended to outsource to other agencies um whereas When we practice it as our own institutions, it's something that deepens a sense of the common goods of the institutions and of our societies, communities, families, and also enables us to gain and retain a character. Um, So I'd be interested to hear more of your thoughts about the sort of challenges that you see to the mode of community that we have within the current situation and how you perceive Christians can answer this challenge.
2: God, that's, that's a very deep question, and in many ways, it is a question of our time. I, I You make me think uh, about a, an event I was at on Monday night in New Orleans. Uh, a young woman, a, an undergraduate, came up to me and uh, said, you know, I, here at my school, I, I hear, she said, I'm a Christian, and I hear more and more people saying that, uh, you know, if only stupid people are Christians. She, she said, how can I counter that? Um, she was pretty pretty aggrieved by it. I mean, she didn't, she seemed very confused by it. And as we kept talking, I I said, so which church do you go to? And she mentioned some sort of non-denominational charismatic church. And I said, so tell me what it's like at that church. Because what I was getting at is uh, trying to figure out if she's being formed, what her formation must be like and she said well it's a church you can go to and you know people believe lots of different things and you can believe whatever you want to you can interpret the bible however you want to the important thing is to be there to to worship and you know be filled with the holy spirit well you know i, I don't want to disrespect that because she was clearly quite sincere but it's also the case that this is a, a perfect example of what you're talking about Alistair of a, of someone who Goes to church looking for a particular thing that feeds her individual soul, or so she perceives, and uh, she doesn't particularly care about doctrine or form or anything like that. It's all about uh, about treating the the experience of church as a, a consumer, and I, I find this is so typical of uh, of American Christians, at least from all churches. I mean, even from the Roman Catholic Church. I you know I was a Catholic for many years and. Even now, I, I talk to uh, Catholics who aren't particularly engaged with the faith, but they, they treat the church as no different uh, from any other consumer institution. And so what I, what I try to do in the Benedict Option is to remind people that, you know, this is something really unusual in the history of Christianity, this sort of inversion that we've had where we feel that we, as the individual sovereign autonomous self, we have the right to curate our own church experience uh, to suit ourselves, uh, as opposed to being formed by the church experience. Now, I realize that I've, I'm no different from most modern people or many modern people. I've, I have chosen the tradition in, what, to, in which I, to which I'm affiliated, the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so, someone could say to me, "Well, if you had followed your inherited family tradition, you would have stayed a Methodist." And that 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 really is true. But I, I have to say that in the The Methodism in which I was raised, it was basically the the white Southern middle class at prayer. Really good people in that church, but there was absolutely nothing countercultural about any of it. It all all seemed to function as a psychological comfort for white Southern middle class life in the 1970s. And uh, that's the sort of thing I'm pushing back on. Whether it's white Southern middle class life or Northern suburban life, it doesn't matter. The idea is that the gospel... Has, it has to be enculturated, it has to be uh, presented within a, a particular cultures, but it also has to stand outside those cultures and judge those cultures and to draw us outside of ourselves and outside of our particular cultures um, so that we can be more faithful to Christ. And I, I think that this is something that is a profound a profound loss in contemporary Christianity. And it's, it's because we are more catechized by popular culture and it's... Uh, the, and the sacrosanct individualism that it that it uh, forms us with than we are by the church itself and the church the church the institutional church has succumbed to this in many ways that's why you have so many churches um offering different features like we have we have a children's service we have this we have that well that's not a church that intends to form uh, disciples that's a church that intends to satisfy consumers
0: So do you think that there's a way to escape this within the material context in which we exist, where there is easy transport to a dozen different churches within your your area? There is the choice of um, many thousands of Christian teachers online. There's the ability to affiliate pretty much as you want and the ability to leave a church if things aren't to your liking how is it possible to reclaim formation when we lack the friction that existed within prior society with limited technological and transport advantages? Is there a way to reclaim the boundaries?
2: Well, you know, one thing that I I think you've written about before that really troubles me is the, the way the internet has completely flattened authority in the church. And Where somebody like uh, the blogger Jen Hatmaker has more actual authority over the people who read her blog than perhaps their local pastor does. And uh, I think in my case what has helped me tremendously has been an affirmative engagement with church history and reading uh, books about what the church teaches, I mean in my case the Eastern Orthodox Church, and uh, and how the church has worshipped and what it has thought over the centuries. I think that in many cases, we are, uh, in fact, most cases, uh, Christians today are are unconsciously uh, living out the the Whig theory of history, the idea that all of Christianity has has uh, culminates in the way we worship today. And uh, I, I remember talking to a a reformed young man at, at, who came to our services the other night at uh, on uh, on Pascha, and I was talking to him about, well, what did you see? And and uh, he he. Talked about the good things and the bad things he saw in Eastern Orthodox worship, but then when I started talking to him about church history, he said, "Wait, wait, wait! I'm a Protestant. Uh, I don't anything before 1500. I don't think about." And I, I thought he was joking at first, but no, he really meant that. He thought that, the, as far as he was concerned, the church uh, went underground at Pentecost and didn't uh, emerge again, until, or at least, it, or maybe it went underground when Constantine converted and didn't emerge again until the Reformation. Well, I, I find that really something hard to, to grapple with, but I think it's probably pretty common. Uh, similarly, with young Catholics, uh, they believe that the church started at Vatican II. Whether they would affirm that or not, they believe that that's, that's how things go. And So I think the only way to really reclaim that, those disciplines, is, uh, first of all, to try to find a church that practices them and has a sort of historical consciousness and a continuity with the Christian past but also to educate yourselves, educate your children. And, and one hopes uh, go to a classical Christian school where they do teach the faith in its fullness. And, uh, and whether or not they, they associate themselves with one of the, the ancient churches, at least they tell you what the ancient church taught. That's something that we get in our uh, in the the classical Christian school to which our children go. It's uh, mostly a Protestant school, but they're they're friendly to Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. And even though they are most people there are Protestants, they give you the early church, and uh, I think that's a tremendous thing. That's something that most American Christians don't get in their own parishes, even if they're Catholic.
3: Can I can I stick my oar in? Um, I mean, I just I think it's a fascinating conversation, and by the way, I, I, it's been great to. Uh, to be in on this conversation with you, Rod, and, and to read the book and to see the response, and I, I was off—I was largely offline for through Lent, so I went not not for in in a classic consumerist <laughs> consumer choice sort of way, in a Matt Anderson kind of way, rather than in a consistent sort of Lenten fasting kind of way. Um, but it means that I, I sort of avoided a lot of the you know conflab and the sort of the, the yelling that I think, from what I since gathered, has precipitated um, after your book. But I I wondered if you were. Given all that, given that all that response, some of which I found fascinating, if you were, if you were rewriting, uh, taking in mind the good, you, you've obviously seen a lot of criticism of the book. You responded. I've seen some of your responses to some of it. I've seen a, a number of different lines of critique. Some of which I thought was very fair, and some of which wasn't. Um, I I wondered if you are going to, if you did it, you had to do it again. Are there which of the particular lines of critique that you have taken on board? Do you think you would say this? I, i'm they They've got something there, this is important, and I would need to adjust, and which do you think oh that's just be waved away i mean i I just for my part i I saw five i suppose lines of um, pushback to varying degrees that I thought i mean there's one which I, well, I would disregard a little bit because I don't think any of us would be there, which is there's nothing wrong with the secular revolution at all. What are you worried about? you could be completely Christian and completely aggressive on everything sort of, which I don't think is, <laughs> uh, that's not where we're, in this conversation we would go anyway. But I, but I think there are, I thought so, in terms of evangelical, um, from people like us, I suppose, put, pushing back in different ways. There's a, there's a thing on withdrawal as a thing makes loving your neighbor more difficult. Is it, is it incompatible with evangelism and the great commission, that sort of tension There's that point? There's a point about whiteness and race and, the experience of the black church and that sort of thing, which I know you'd engage with a bit. There's the thing on alarmism, uh, that you were too apocalyptic. Uh, there's the thing on, oh, there's nothing unusual about this. It's just what we've all been saying. In other words, it's not apocalyptic enough. Um, so obviously, sometimes criticism is pulling opposite directions. And then there was the, it's not quite clear what it is, that so strategic withdrawal. What do you, what exactly do you mean? And if is there something? So is it just very elastic, such that it means full-on monastic vows right the way through to so plugging into Netflix instead of cable or retraining as a plumber? And I suppose those are the things – and you've probably seen a great deal more than I have – but those are the sort of – I'm trying to disentangle the things that people are pushing back. Of those, which ones do you think have the most merit that that have made you stop and think, well, well I think the proposal is still very plausible, but I think – that's probably a helpful nuance, or helpful adjustment to what I said. And which ones are you saying? To be honest, I think that's just either a misunderstanding or. Uh,
2: well, the, those are great questions, and I may ask you to repeat some of those points as I respond because I want to make sure I get them all. <laughs> but uh, on the on the race question, that is one that is so vexed to me because it it is so caught up in the contemporary broader racial conversation in the U.S. Some critics have said that, uh, well, you didn't talk about the experience of the black church, and therefore the Benedict option is uh, something just for white Christians, white middle-class class Christians. Well, I, I, I frankly didn't see that one coming, I, although I, I did make a conscious decision not to write about the experience of the black church of the United States uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I, I f- feared that it would be taken or be interpreted by some as an attempt to for me as a white guy to appropriate the very particular experience of the black church in resisting slavery and Jim Crow, uh, it, would, it would be an illegitimate appropriation of, of that experience. And I think that's there, there might be something to that, because you have so many people saying, oh, you're far too alarmist. Well, add, add into that, uh, and, you're, and you're actually saying that Christians today have to experience something like the black church did when their churches were being bombed, their people were being hanged no, I'm not saying that at all. And I I tried to avoid that particular controversy by simply not including the black church experience. But it's also the case that um, the the, the crisis I'm writing about is not a crisis of having to be resilient under intense persecution. It's more a case of having to be uh, resilient in a case, in a condition where nothing really matters. Choose whatever you want. In other words, it's the difference between 1984 and Brave New World. We may get to a 1984 type uh, situation with Christianity in the West in the future. I hope not, but we may get there and uh, that requires something different. But mostly we're, we're facing Brave New World when nobody particularly cares if you're a Christian or not uh, until you cross certain lines, usually having to do with uh, LGBT issues, in which case you run afoul of the law and of the Cultures, particular pieties, but I, I didn't want to. It just seemed too messy to bring the Black Church into that because it wasn't particularly relevant either to the to the case I'm making. And uh, I also uh, have said to Black Christians, I'm like, look, St. Benedict is your father in the faith as well. He comes from the fifth century when the Church was united, and uh, you know, there's there are none of us here, uh, no Christians today. Who are doing it right and you have a lot to learn from him as well, but that hasn't gone over particularly well But I I don't I don't think I I made a mistake by leaving the black church out of it Um, The the alarmism thing that that is one of the most puzzling things to me you've had that from some people saying oh, you're being too alarmist. Uh, I I strongly disagree I, I don't see how you can look at the statistics of first of all the number of people who are falling away from the church uh, that is incredible how quickly that's happened, especially in Britain. You know, I just did this cover story for this The uh, Spectator in the UK, and um, I, as part of researching it, seeing how quickly Britain has gone from being at least a nominally Christian culture to something uh, post-Christian, it's it's been shocking to me. And we're headed the same way in the United States. I mean, the, the trend lines are very clear, but a lot of Christians don't want to see it. And not only the falling away from the church, but... The way that uh, the the content of what people believe, it often has nothing to do or very little to do with what's actually in the Bible or what has actually been understood from Christian tradition. So this is a tremendous crisis. Uh, When I go to different uh, colleges, evangelical or Catholic, and talk to the faculty, they all say the same thing, that these kids who are coming to our universities Uh, Are coming out of churches coming out of Christian families, but they know next to nothing about The Christian faith other than Jesus is my friend. Jesus loves me. God wants me to be happy and that's pretty much where it stops So this is a tremendous crisis This is not the kind of faith this moralistic therapeutic deism that is going to be able to withstand any kind of uh, outside pressure So I I I don't I don't think I would I would uh, rewrite that differently one thing I would do, though, is um, is to try to be a little more concrete about what the Benedict option is or can be. You, you're, I think it's a fair criticism to say it's pretty elastic, and there's a reason I did leave it elastic. Uh, first of all, I, I I don't have an answer. I don't have a formulaic. Here's the fifty fifty ways you can Benedict option your life and, uh, and get everything get everything down to. Here's your formula for weight loss or yeah, that's right. There's their next New York Times bestseller, right there. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, but it's really true. I mean, I I, I say in the book that um, I try to be upfront about this. It's like we we haven't no Christian has had to face this kind of thing for a very long time. Pope Benedict the sixteenth himself said that the spiritual crisis of the West is uh, as serious as it has it hasn't been this serious since the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. So. You know, there's a sense in which we are facing something completely new to our experience or almost new, certainly true to uh, new in any living memory. And the the existence of the internet, as Alistair has written, has really, it's having an effect on the way we perceive authority that is unlike anything that uh, I I can think of. Um, So I I would try to be a little more specific about what what I mean by, by the Benedict Option, but at the same time, I really genuinely believe, as I say in the book, that we have to work this out together. I have, uh, you know, I've never been an evangelical. That's the one main Christian tradition I've ne- never been, but I have learned so much from my uh, evangelical friends about what they're doing in their churches and the way they see things and ways that, um, you know, things that that I would like to take into my life as an Orthodox Christian. and. And i hope that they will see things in the way we live as orthodox christians that they can uh, adapt to their lives as evangelicals and uh that will strengthen their their christianity and their their resilience so um but i, I do i think it's fair for people to say oh this is kind of amorphous now and uh, i i try to be as specific as i could by giving examples in the book of communities uh, evangelical orthodox and catholic who are doing good things things i think are uh, are salutary and uh, and do build that resilience in the gospel and in our practices but um, i i don't quite know how i could have been more explicit given how the culture itself seems to be shifting so rapidly and uh, that this is what it means to live in liquid modernity i guess i mean what what do, what would you what do you think i should have done differently <laughs> i, I... I'm intrigued.
3: I've got a, I've got a sort of a 10, uh, uh, I, I, I basically came back off, off my, you know, going back online after Lent and thought, I, this is such an interesting debate. A lot of people in Britain, I don't think have a lot of people who follow my stuff or read my stuff probably don't know very much about it. So I was going to do a sort of Benedict option in 10 statements sort of piece, which I drafted prior to this conversation. And I actually, my, I think my main thing was that the, exactly the thing you picked up, which is interesting that the, uh, the, the, the elasticity of what you're, and, and at in places, I guess that what you're calling a deliberate vagueness, I think it, it's interesting that you've it's been able to be interpreted as meaning two almost diametrically opposite things by readers who I think in some cases are reading in good faith. I think there's people saying this is batten down the hatches, go away and hide, disappear off and make be, become form of a become part of a you know plantation, you know society in Italy in a hill somewhere. And you've got other people saying, this is just what we've been saying all along, you need a bit more liturgy and you need to not take your smartphone upstairs at night kind of thing. And the fact that people have got upset about it at both ends of the spectrum, I think, reflects to me that, the, that there's somewhere in the content of the book was a sort of, I, I, I guess you've been deliberately equivocal about some of those things. But I, I think that's, that's probably what's prompted that. I found the, the, the race comment you made interesting because, although I don't speak in an American context, I'm now a pastor in a black majority church, and I realize how much of the, the sort of people in the, in the church would probably say, well, we've been in this sort of thing for such a long time, this is nothing new. But I think my challenge, I guess, contextualizing it in a more European, because I think the same is true of the European church, actually. We've been in Christianity for a long time as well. Right, um, right. But I think in contextualizing the book, I've been, I would want to say, I think this book still has something to say to you. But it's it, because it's referring to at least the way I would distinguish it, between what you're doing and the experience of the black church, which may be similar to what you were saying just now, is that it, rather than the, ex, the pressures on the church being external, per, explicit persecution from the surrounding culture, which is the experience of the black church. I know you talk a lot about that in the book, and I think that might be where the confusion comes. But it seems to me that your main warning to the church you're speaking about is that within the church itself, there is a loss of identity as to what makes us faithful orthodox grounded historically rooted believers and that that wasn't true and it seems to me that that wasn't true in the same way in the black church so the, the identity crisis within actually in some ways external persecution strengthened the commonality and the sense of community and togetherness and coherence within the black community in a way that the white if i call it the white church for the sake of argument things are in the states that doesn't seem to be true in the same way so i think there might be uh, there's again a nuance there where i feel like your book may have more to say to some of that than is perhaps appeared but i think that's because it's some of the challenges about external pressure and the persecution narrative are bundled in so much with the internal collapse under the pressure loss of identity thing that i think it's hard to sift between the two so i think probably it's just a, a on a few things i think it could it could have been clearer to but then I, I do understand why you wanted to write something which was as open-ended as possible without wanting to shut down too many avenues of what it looked like. In
2: practice. So right. that's right. a slightly woolly response. What no, no, f- no, no, I think that's helpful. I, 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 spoke the other night to a, uh, a young black woman who, uh, I say young that probably betrays my age. She looked like she was in her early forties and uh, she was telling me, she's a reader of the book and she agrees with the book. Um, but she, she said, you know, my parents growing up, they grew up, in, my parents grew up under segregation, this young woman said, and uh, they talk about how, uh, how bittersweet they are about what's happened since. Obviously, they're glad segregation is over and uh, would not go back to it, but they talk about how close the community was, the black community was back then, and how strong the black church was. Today, said this black woman, they look at the black church and they see it's a complete mess in many ways. And uh, I I was fascinated to hear that because it's something that I would not have said as a white man, even if it were true and even if I found evidence that it were true. But uh, she was quite frank with me saying we in the black church have a lot to clean up in our own house because we've been just as affected by modernity as everybody else. But uh, I and I told her, I said, look, you need to write that book. It's not a book that I can write. but somebody needs to write that book. And I do hope that people will Go readers of the Benedict option that one of the first things they'll do is start thinking about what What this diagnosis at least means for them in their particular place and in their particular tradition I've been talking to uh, your colleague and our mutual friend uh, Jake meter about the Benedict option for Evangelicals because it's gonna look different than it will for for Eastern Orthodox Christians for obvious reasons um, and I, so I tried to leave the project open enough. I mean that the book itself is written to all small O Orthodox Christians mere Christians uh, Because I, I didn't want it to appear sectarian, but I, I, I hope I was explicit enough in there to say that You know, this is something that we will all have to adapt as creative minorities we have we'll have to experiment some things will fail other things will succeed but we've got no choice now we can't sit here and wait for the solution to come down from on high because we're going to drown if we don't get busy experimenting building our arcs so to speak we're going to drown and in fact it's happening we're losing so many people to the to the faith right now something different must be done uh, do you guys agree on that at least
0: i think most of us would agree right yeah. i think yeah, I think, I think
1: we're all on board with that. I think one of the, I mean, trying to specify the nature of the problem um, is really important. And, you know, Andrew's language of external persecution versus, you know, the the internal corrosion of the communities and, and losing people from within, I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about the specific nature of this challenge. Because obviously, in the past, you know, Christianity has faced what appeared what would, would appear to be existential threats. Right. Um, uh, and, um, the question is, you know, what's, what's distinct or unique about the existential threat of our day. And that internal external pressure is, is one way to think about it. Another way might be just, um, what I would maybe describe as uh, something like a visible invisible sort of persecution or a, um, a hard or a, a, a soft, um, persecution, um, I mean, it it just seems like the um, the mechanisms of coercion are so much seem so much more benign and innocent in our own day, in part because the the form of coercion isn't um, doesn't take the explicit bodily form that it, it, it even took in. The Jim Crow era, right? It's, it's uh, it, the instruments of coercion are, um, are just much more subtle. And I think from that standpoint, that, that, that subtlety makes it much harder to persuade people that there is something that's actually really at stake in how um, things are going and exacerbates what, what has been described, I think, as alarmism, right? Uh, my sense is that it's just it, when when the instruments of coercion are mostly invisible to us. And when the ideology beneath the, that coercion is so pleasurable and enjoyable to so many swaths, different swaths and segments of society, then trying to articulate that, that there is something really existential and really fundamental at, at stake, that there is a, as you called it, a spiritual crisis um, strikes me as enormously difficult. and, uh, and it becomes easy to sort of look in the past and say, well, look, obviously, I mean, Christians have it way better today than they've, you know, had it in lots of other periods in our history. And so what's the big deal? And I think the big deal is that the the coercion is such a small deal, and we're all struggling to to sort of notice it and respond to it. Is that description of your your response and your uh, your relation to the problem of our time? is, it, is does that capture it?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's really well said, Matthew. and i I um, you know, I, I think that when i I am confronted by people either in person or online about that I'm exaggerating the situation. You know, I, I one thing I tell them is like, you know, look, I, I talk to law professors and, and lawyers who are involved in the religious liberty aspect of this, and they can lay it out for you chapter and verse where the problems are and why things are unlikely to get any better and in fact are likely to get a lot worse for Christians and, and our actual lives. Uh, I talked to uh, a, a leading physician who's on the cutting edge of, of watching for threats coming to uh, religious liberty in his own profession. And, you know, he was talking about genetic engineering and the way um, that he sees his own profession evolving quite rapidly to where Christian doctors will be compelled to do abortions or euthanasia as a condition of, for their licensing. In fact, the man told me that he would encourage his own children not to go in to medicine because he's afraid that they'll be saddled with an enormous amount of debt for medical school and then they'll be forced to do things that violate their conscience as Christians in order to, just to pay the debt off. Now, these sound crazy to your average Christian in the street because they don't see it coming. But people who follow this stuff for a living, they, they, they do this because this is their vocation. They can see the threats rather clearly. And uh, I, I think that in, in the U.S., at least, we're so accustomed to the thinking that to the presentism, to thinking that it's always going to be this way. And. Because anybody can go to whatever church they want to now. They people think, ah, there's there's no problem here. But as you say, the mechanism of of, of coercion uh, is is rather strong, and the fact that people aren't aware that they are the frog in the the proverbial frog in the boiling pot is a big part of the problem. I, I believe that it was uh, the American critic Richard Weaver who wrote uh, the famous book Ideas Have Consequences, which is one of these conservative classics. He said that our inability today to perceive the nature of, our, of the threat against us is part of the problem. And I think McIntyre, Alistair McIntyre, said something quite similar. You know, we, we think as long as we have free choice and we're comfortable that everything is fine. But um, in fact, there's a, I'm trying to stand there and tell people, hey, everything is not fine. We're in worse trouble than, than you think. That's not a popular message, I guess.
0: One of the things that might be a problem there is just the difficulty of predicting these things that are going to take place and predicting how it will feel to people when they do take place. Because there's this disjunction between the way things look as they appear as threatening clouds on the horizon and the way they appear when we're actually in the middle of them. Because when if we were to describe certain features of our society to someone living 150 years ago, they'd be appalled at the levels of um, um, divorce, um, premarital relations, children born out of wedlock, the level of um, drug crisis, the level of um, use of pornography, all these sorts of things. And yet for us, it does not seem to have that... um, that level of threat to our society, we've become accustomed to it. It seems normal. It doesn't seem to be something that we can't live with. It's a reality in our society, but it doesn't seem to afflict us. How is it possible to sensitise people to the threat of these things in a way that doesn't fall prey to, or well, doesn't succumb to um, alarmism. I mean, I, I'm not sure how it's possible because these things are things that we should be alarmed about. But yet, in right. reality, right. we've become so accustomed and deadened to them that we don't realize that we're being destroyed by them. It's like this noxious gas that no one can really sense, but it is killing us.
2: Right. right. I, I um, I'm reminded of the line from the American writer, Flannery O'Connor, who was asked why she wrote uh, such such grotesque characters in her short stories and she said well when everybody is deaf you have to shout and uh, i i think that one of the things i get uh, one of the big pushbacks i get from people is to say well look and you know in this country in the 1940s uh, racism was perfectly normal and in many churches in the south they would not have seen segregation uh, racial segregation outside the church as being a particular problem. Well, that that really is true, but think about how we defeated racial segregation in the US. Uh, Martin Luther King and the other civil rights leaders, that movement came out of the black church. And what they did, most basically, was confront white America uh, with not only its failure to live up to the promises of the Constitution for black Americans, but also it's their failure as Christians to honor what, what Christ taught us. And uh, I think today, one one difference is we don't particularly feel bound by anything normative. You know, we can make the gospel into whatever we want to, like that young woman, the undergraduate said, you know, you could go to our church and you can interpret the Bible however you want to. And that's that's one thing she thought was great about it. Uh, I, I think that in the past, there was never a utopia. Uh, the last utopia ended when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, but um we at least had some objective standard of, of truth that outside of ourselves by which we could judge our own descent uh, into decadence or our ascent towards uh, towards something good. The loss of that standard in the general consciousness of, of most people in modernity, I think poses a particular problem to us because uh, I'll put it to you like this. I remember, um, some years ago, I got into an argument. I was on the editorial board of, the, of a newspaper. I got into an argument about same-sex marriage uh, with one of my, my colleagues. Uh, this was around 2004 when it was just starting to become a real issue in the States. And um, my colleague was a Catholic, a self-identified conservative Republican and a Catholic, 35 years old or so. And, but he was all for same-sex marriage. And I remember talking to him about it and trying to use the catechism As a way to bolster my own argument against same-sex marriage, and he simply didn't accept the authority of the Catechism, and I was so frustrated. I said, "said Look, you're you're a Catholic. This has authority over you. The teachings of the Catholic Church are supposed to mean something to you and to bind your conscience." He just looked at me like I had lost my mind, and uh, he said, "Well, no. I, I was baptized a Catholic. I go to Mass. I'm." You have, your, your opinion has no, uh, no authority over me, or the opinion of the church doesn't have any authority over my conscience. Well, guys, I, I think if that's where we are in society, I don't see how you can ever land a blow uh, to, to wake people up out of their torpor, because it's kind of a, a shrug and say, yeah, whatever, you know, my conscience is supreme do you have any any idea how we can we can reach people to have them even understand the nature of the condition that we're in
0: i think one of the things that the benedict option does offer is the possibility of creating alternative communities within which people can register their reality as something worthy of attention that by the very contrast between a community of Christian faithfulness and the normalcy of um, modern life, that contrast is an illuminating one in both directions. And I think it's a powerful one when you see people who have come in contact with it. It's one of the reasons why I think the binary of withdrawal or engagement that has often characterised the responses to your book has been... A difficult and frustrating one, because often what is necessary is a consolidation of Christian identity and faithfulness, um, re-establishing certain boundaries, certain norms, etc., and defending those things, and establishing communities of formation, discipleship, and commitment. And those communities are integral to faithful evangelism, integral to faithful ministry to a community around, if we don't have something to bring people into, um, we don't have anything to bring out to the world. And it's the establishment of these communities is ground zero for building um, the church of the future, a church that's going to be faithful within this day and age. And so I think seeing it purely in terms of protection from the society, Um, that's part of it but it's more than that it's the means by which we will minister to the society the means by which we will expose what is presumed to be normal to be something other than normal to be something that's toxic to human well-being when people see how people thrive in a christian community and in a context where people are living together faithfully they notice something about the rest of their lives. They notice the things that are missing, the ways that they've been alienated, the ways that their spiritual life has been asphyxiated by um, media, entertainment, these sorts of things. And so you talk about a lot at different points about communist dissidents, and I thought that was one of the most powerful analogies to explore. And the power of living within the truth um, as something that doesn't necessarily have to look towards some result. In some ways, recognising it may not be successful as a means of winning over the society or winning the cultural war, whatever it is, it's more important than that. And that faithfulness first begins with the integrity of our own communities. But beyond that, it is the means of ministering to the society beyond and alerting them to the toxic character of our um, cultural context in many respects. So I'd be interested to hear more of your thoughts on that, because that was one of the things that I really took away from the book, um, that this is far from being a withdrawal from evangelism and ministry to the society. This is actually one of the primary means by which we can do that.
2: Yeah, that's very well said. I, I, uh, I was really motivated in writing this book by an observation that Benedict the 16th made when back when he was simply father Ratzinger um, He talked about how the the greatest The greatest witness the church has is not the arguments it makes uh, But the art it produces and the Saints it produces in other words uh, Beauty and goodness open the door to truth and I think that's particularly a particularly profound insight in in the culture we face today, for reasons you just articulated, uh, because people may not wish to hear or may not be in a, in a position to understand propositional truth, uh, the, the propositions of the gospel and of conversion, but if they can see what it looks like in, in an incarnational way. And they can see what the gospel, the, the serenity and the courage and the, uh, the joy it gives to those who live by it, then that will be a powerful witness. In fact, I, I had to, getting involved in these conversations after the book was uh, came out, I, I had to reflect on how that was exactly how I came to Christ as a, as a young adult. It wasn't through people witnessing to me and giving, speaking to me logically about the faith and its propositions. But rather, it was going to the uh, cathedral at uh, Chartres when I was seventeen, and being overwhelmed by the beauty and God's grandeur and the beauty of that cathedral, for which I had no preparation. Nothing in my experience growing up in small town, small town American South in the nineteen seventies had prepared me for that medieval cathedral. And I didn't walk out of that church as a as a Christian, but I walked out of there believing that I had. Seen something that I couldn't articulate but was greater than myself and I wanted to know the God uh, that whose temple this was and uh, A few years later it was being around this saintly elderly Catholic Monsignor who uh, uh, He just radiated goodness and joy and peace and I wanted the peace he had in his heart those things uh, It was sort of a pre evangelism the beauty of the cathedral and the goodness of the saintly Monsignor who, that opened my heart to the truth of the gospel and helped me to eventually accept it. So uh, I, I think that we have we, we can't think of the Benedict Option as an evangelical strategy in the in the conventional sense, but uh, as an evangelical strategy in the sense of manifesting what it's like to live in Christ and to live lives transformed by Christ. When I, I write in the book about this community in Italy, the Tipiloski, who... Uh, Live in a city called San Benedetto del Tronto. They all live in normal apartments and houses like everybody else and they go to their ordinary parishes But they come together in a sort of clubhouse they have for uh, for mass For Bible study for they do sports together with their kids They do a community garden and things like that to build their their relationship to strengthen their relationship to God and strengthen their relationship to each other you go around these people, you, you, want, you say, I want what they have, because they are very orthodox in their Catholicism, and they're very diligent about practicing it, but they're not angry about it, they're not weirdos, they're just normal people, but they have something special. And uh, to me, that is a much more effective uh, way of evangelization than uh, anything I can think of, because the, the witness of their lives is the thing that is so, um, so earth-shaking.
1: Well, uh, Rod, um, I think that's a terrific note to end on. I hope that uh, our lives and our communities are half as earth-shaking as uh, what you encountered there. Um, and certainly the the book, The Benedict Option, has been earth-shaking in its own way. Uh, uh, congratulations again on the attention it's drawn. And uh, more importantly, thank you for um, the discussion that... It, it has generated, even while it's been contentious at points. um, uh, I think we can all be grateful for drawing our attention, for your drawing our attention to some of these questions. And even within the critical responses, you know, helping us think uh, more carefully and and more (laughs) about uh, the shape that uh, our Christian witness should take in this world. So thanks for your work and and, and do carry on.
2: Well, th- thank you very much, Matthew. And thanks for having me on. I, I do hope that my book, uh, it doesn't provide all the answers, but I hope it has asked the right questions so that the church, all of us working together, can work out these answers for ourselves and, and incarnate them into our, our individual lives and into our lives and community. That's
1: great. Um, for those of you who are listening at home uh, just one last reminder we won't be around over the summer but we hope that you will check in with us when we return and we will certainly uh, let you know when that is we're so grateful for your time for your attention and for all the support that you've given to us uh, and uh, we look forward to being back with you uh, come later this summer thanks very much and have a wonderful day